Good morning. How are you guys this morning? Good. Like everybody already said, you braved the, the I guess this is what this generation's blizzard of 93 is, right? The blizzard of 22. You guys braved the blizzard, braved the time change. And so thank you for making it a priority to be here this morning. We're going to continue in Psalm 118 where we've been uh, going through the book of Psalms, a selection of Psalms, uh, looking at a series titled Wisdom and Worship. What does it mean to live a life of wisdom and worship? And first of all, my name is Jonathan. For those of you that I've not met yet, I'm sorry. I'd love to meet you. My wife is Mason. Uh, We've been here for about three years now, and we love uh, this church. We love the people. We love you guys, and we're grateful that you have loved us and cared for us. And so uh, Jeff this morning is back, but he was on vacation this week, and so I think it's good that we give him an opportunity as a church to leave and go rest and relax and enjoy his family and then continue to lead us well. And so you got me this morning, and so we're going to dig into Psalms 118 and see what God has for us. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it. You're going to need it. But before we get into Psalm 118, uh, I want to tell you a story about a a man named Henry Molasson. And he was born on February 26th, 1926 in Manchester, Connecticut. And he experienced what became known as intractable epilepsy uh, that has sometimes been attributed to him uh, at a bicycle accident that he had at the age of of seven. He had minor or partial seizures for many, many years, and then after the age of 16, he began experiencing grand mal, if I'm pronouncing that right, seizures. To the point that he was not able to work, he was not able to have a job, he wasn't able to do anything outside of just exist. And so he had high doses of anticonvulsant medication, and that still did not allow him to live a normal life. And so in 1953, uh, Molasson was referred to a doctor named William Beecher Scoville, who was a neurosurgeon at Hartford Hospital. And the doctor, Scoville, localized this man's epilepsy to his left and right medial temporal lobes. Again, all of you health people, I'm sorry if I mispronounced these things, okay? And he suggested that the, they be removed, that these, uh, this epilepsy be surgically resected. uh, resected. So on September 1st, 1953, Scoville removed Molasson's medial temporal lobes on both of the hemispheres of the brain, including the hippocampi and a couple of other things that I'm not even going to try and pronounce because you guys would make fun of me for weeks. But his hippocampi appeared entirely non-functional to the point that uh, it it developed this anterior grade amnesia for the rest of his life. So imagine for a moment you're not ever able to develop new memories. This man, when the doctor went in and resected uh, this part of his brain, his brain was no longer able to commit new events to memory. Every day was a new day, something brand new. That's sad to wake up and not remember the day before or to remember only certain parts of your past. So imagine for a moment what this man's, must, what this man's life must have been like to not be able to develop new memories we often can develop amnesia as a follower of Jesus. And amnesia is the, refers to the loss of memories, facts, information, and experiences that we might have. We forget who we once were. We forget who we are. And there's really no cure for amnesia. There's certain different things that you can do, certain exercises that you can practice, things that you can do to, in order to help build new memories, but there's no cure But this spiritual amnesia, the forgetting of who we were, the forgetting of who we are, 
and who we once were can be remediated as a follower of Jesus. The cure for our spiritual amnesia is to remind ourselves daily of the gospel, of our sin, and of our need for Jesus. Again, there's no cure. We're going to forget, but we can practice. We can exercise our memory. This spiritual amnesia is why Jerry Bridges, in his book titled The Disciplines of Grace, would say this, preach the gospel to yourself daily. How do we not forget who we once were and who we are is that we preach the gospel to ourselves daily. We need to remind ourselves of passages like 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. It says this, it's on the screen. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We were not receiving mercy, and now through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have received mercy. We once were not a chosen race, but now we are a chosen race. We are saved by the blood of Jesus. We need to remind ourselves that it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we are chosen, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession that can proclaim the excellencies of him. We need to remind ourselves of Romans 5, 7 through 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were good. We didn't clean ourselves up and then come to Jesus. Jesus died for us while we were sinners. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We need to remind ourselves that we didn't earn it and that we don't deserve it. We need to remind ourselves of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedient, among whom we all lived once in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were hopeless We had no hope. We were dead. We were in our sin. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We once were dead. Now we're alive. We once lived in the passions of our flesh. We once carried out the desires of our flesh. But now, but God died for us. And now we are brand new. We should praise God through Jesus Christ who takes away our sins and makes us brand new. We once were dead, now we're alive. We once were enemies of God, but now we are friends of God. And that should get an amen because now we're friends. (laughs) And now because of that, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confessions, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, 
Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. We can approach the throne of God boldly, but we need to remember what we once were. We were dead. We were sinners. We were carrying out the inclinations of our flesh, but God, being rich in mercy with his great love that he had for us, redeemed us, renewed us by the blood of Jesus Christ, preaching the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves of who we once were and who we are now in Christ is essential to following Jesus or else there's the temptation to forget, to develop that amnesia. So this psalm, Psalm 118, is all about remembering. It's all about remembering. And before we dig into the psalm, I want to give a little bit of background that I think will help us better understand the context and therefore the application as well. A lot of scholars believe that the author of the text was David, but it's not stated, so we can't say with 100% confidence that it was. And it's processional, meaning that it takes place over the course of as they're walking into the temple and then also in the temple. So verses 1 through 19 take place outside the temple gates, and verses 20 through 29 take place inside the temple gates. And that's important as we get later in the psalm. And this psalm would have been saying on the way to the temple as a way for the people that are singing it to remind themselves of certain attributes of God that we're going to talk about. And this psalm ends what is known as the Hallel Psalms, which are Psalms 113 to 118, which is what would have been saying verbatim or quoted verbatim by Jews at certain celebrations and festivals. So this psalm, along with 113 through 117 and 118, would have been saying by Jesus as a reminder and would have been saying by other Jews around that time as a reminder of who God is and what he's done. So with all that in mind, let's read through this psalm in its entirety, starting in verse 1, chapter 118 of Psalms. It says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. 
Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we have the opportunity to open your word and to remember and to reflect. And so, Lord, I pray now that that you would be with us as we go, that we would not come with any presuppositions or biases to your word, but that your word would change us and mold us and shape us. Lord, may we submit to you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Well, a life of wisdom and worship remembers and reflects on the love of the Lord. Verses 1 through 4. Again, it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. And let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures endures forever. So again, this was a psalm that was saying on the way into the temple. So these first four verses are the first part of what they're singing on the way to the temple. This would have been saying on the outside as a reminder of who God is before they even get into the temple for them to give sacrifice and to sing praise. So this serves as a reminder for us. The first thing that the author does, if it's David or whoever it is, the first thing the author does is give thanks. And then, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about it at the end, the last thing that the author does is give thanks. And so that should be a lesson for us as we come to the Lord and as we leave the Lord. We should give thanks when we come and give thanks when we leave because he is great. The author begins with thankfulness in verses 1 through 4. Why is the author thankful? Well, he says in verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love is endures forever. So we should be thankful because the love of the Lord is faithful. It is loyal. We don't often use the word steadfast in our vocabulary anymore, but it just means loyal, forever, constant. So the author begins by saying that the love of the Lord is faithful, loyal, steadfast, constant. And then he says, who should give thanks? He says, the house of Israel should say, or Israel should say, the house of Aaron should say, and those who fear the Lord should say that his love endures forever. Now, these three distinctions, Israel, the house of Aaron, and those who fear the Lord, is meant to be all-encompassing. It's meant to mean everyone should say. Everyone should say that the love of the Lord endures forever. The author's calling the whole community of Israel, those who would have sang this psalm on the way into the temple, he's telling them to remember that the love of the Lord is faithful. God's love for us is loyal. God's love for us is faithful. God's love for us is constant. In our tradition and in our setting, I think we can sometimes neglect to think about God's love that he has for us. But he does love us deeply. He cares for us deeply, his children. I can quickly, and I mean for myself, I can quickly convince myself that God is angry with me or that God is upset with me Or that God's love for me is conditional based on what I do or don't do. And that I'm not truly forgiven for all my sin. And I think maybe some of you in the room also have that same struggle of believing that lie. That God's love for you is conditional. But God's love endures forever. It is steadfast. It is loyal. It is constant. God is not bipolar. He doesn't wake up tomorrow morning angry with you while he was pleased with you today. He doesn't change his mind towards you if you're in Christ. His love is not conditional. 
His love is faithful and steadfast even when we're not. He is always faithful and his love always endures. Romans 8, 35 through 39 says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we are in Christ, then nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's not conditional. If you're in Christ, it is constant. Don't believe the lie that tomorrow morning God is angry with you. He still loves you. There might be some sin that you need to deal with. So this is why we give thanks to the Lord, because his love for us is not dependent on us. God's love for us is not dependent on us. It's dependent on himself, and he is never changing. God's love for us is not like our love for one another. Even our most pure love for another person is evil at times, is selfish at times, has impure motivations at times. But God's love for us is sacrificial. It's selfless. It's always pure and it's always true. God's love for us is not dependent on our actions. It's dependent on one person, the person of Jesus Christ. So when God looks at me and when God looks at you, he no longer sees me in my sin. He sees me, he sees you through the blood of Jesus Christ. So when he looks at me, he doesn't look at me and say, you're blank sinner. Or you, you're a sinner. He sees you, he sees me through the blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore his love is constant, steadfast, loyal, forever. God's love for us, God's love for me, God's love for you is faithful. It never changes. It will endure forever. It will remain forever. And this is worth remembering and reflecting on. Lest we forget (laughs) And begin to think and believe the lie that God's love for us is dependent upon us. So how does remembering and reflecting on the love of the Lord lead us to live a life of wisdom and worship? Well, when we stop and remember that God's love for us is constant, loyal, it produces in us a desire to worship him. It produces in us a desire to glorify the name of Jesus. So we should remember and reflect on the love that the Lord has for you. And in doing so, allow our hearts to stir with desire and affection for him. So the psalmist moves from speaking of the love of the Lord in verses 1 through 4 to speaking of what the Lord has delivered him from in verses 5 through 18. So the second thing that I want you to see this morning is that a life of wisdom and worship remembers and reflects on the deliverance of the Lord. Starting in verse 5, Out of my distress I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The author of this psalm recounts a time where he was in distress. Distress means extreme anxiety, worry, fear, pain, sorrow. So the author is calling out to the Lord in his pain, in his sorrow, in a dark moment in his life. He called out to the Lord in distress. And here's the the cool thing that I like. The Lord answered. (laughs) I was talking with somebody this week, and they were talking about how they felt like they couldn't go to the Lord with what was bothering them with their thoughts, with their feelings, with their emotions. 
And kind of the baseline was that they felt like God couldn't handle their distress. But Matthew 6, 8 says this, Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. God, your problems are not too big for God. Go to Him. Run to Him. Call out to Him in your dark moments, in the dark seasons of your life, and He will answer you. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In our distress, in our darkness, in our dark seasons, we can run to Jesus and he will give us rest. But then in verse 6 it says, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I will look in triumph on those who hate me. So the author is calling out to the Lord in the midst of a distressful situation in a dark season of his life. And then he says that the Lord is on his side. There's no reason to fear man. The Lord is on his side. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. The Lord is on the author's side. So what is there to fear? What can mere man do to them? Matthew 10, 28 says this. And do not though fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Man might be able to kill us. Man might be able to cause extreme pain. Man might cause us to feel torture, to feel extreme sorrow. But man can never separate us from the love of Christ, Romans 8. So don't fear man. We should fear God. So in our distressful situations, we can run to God because man's not going to do anything to us that God's not going to allow him to do. And then verse 8, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you, and he will never leave you or forsake you. You know who will leave us? You know who will forsake us? Man. People. Kings. Rulers. Political saviors. They will leave us. At some point, our spouse is going to let us down. At some point, our kids will let us down. At some point, the people around us, our family, will let us down. So in our dark times, in our, in our dark seasons, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Man will let you down. The next politician who promises something great won't deliver. The next boss who promises raises might not follow through if it means that his pocket isn't first filled. And why can I say that? Well, Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We are sinners. <laughs> and we can't trust other sinners <laughs> to be our refuge. Verse 10, All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. So again, he's just describing this distressful situation that he's going through. He's describing what the Lord has delivered him from. Often we might say or hear it said that God is on our side, but what does that actually mean? And I think 2 Kings 6 illustrates this beautifully. It's going to be on the screen. This is not the passage that the author was referring to more than likely, but I think this helps us understand what it means that God is on our side. 
And that when we're surrounded by all these things around us, we've got to have a perspective other than what's right in front of us. So let's read 2 Kings 6, starting in verse 13, going through 17. And he said, and he is the king of Syria, and he said, go and see where he is. He there is Elisha, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now just stop there for just a minute. So what's happening is, is the king of Syria has sent out all these people to surround Elisha in the city of Dothan, right? And so the man of God is asleep, and his servant wakes up, wakes up the man of God and says, Elisha, there's all these people surrounding us right now. And Elisha's like, don't worry about it, bro. It's fine. Right? And the, man, and the servant's like, why? And Elisha says, well, because those who are with us are more than with him. And I just envision this, I have this picture in my mind of what this, this conversation goes back and forth between this servant and Elisha. And I just think about the servant being like, what are you on? There's no one around us. <laughs> there's no one here. And so then in verse 17, then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. Oftentimes in our distress and our struggle and the moments that we need to be delivered from, we're not focused on what our God can do. We're just seeing what's directly in front of us. So we see the problem. We see what we need to be delivered from. And we don't realize that our God commands angel armies. Legions upon legions upon legions of angels that we never see. He is in control of all things. Who is there to fear? I love this passage because I think it does beautifully in illustrating that God, while it seems like everything is against us, is still for us if we're in Christ. Verse 13. Again, he's recounting this moment of distress Verse 13, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So the Lord has become the author's salvation. The Lord helped the author through his distress. Verse 13, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord delivered him. <laughs> Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He is my salvation. Do you see him recounting, telling again the deeds of the Lord? That's what verse 15 and 16 is. He's telling the congregation, those who are singing this song, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. He delivered me. He helped me. He saved me from my distress. If you're in Christ, then you have been delivered from your sinful state. The Lord has delivered us from our sinful state, from our addictions, from our failures, from our sinful passions and our flesh. The Lord has delivered us. That's who we once were. And he has delivered us to be friends of him. I love the second half of verse 17. 
and recount the deeds of the Lord. Verse 13 through 15, really 16, is him recounting the deeds of the Lord very specifically, but I love and recount the deeds of the Lord. Recount means to bring back up, to tell someone about an experience or an instant in our life. So for the author to recount the deeds of the Lord would mean for him or whoever this is to tell about what the Lord has brought him through. Recount, to bring back up, to tell those about the goodness of the Lord in those times. So to recount the Lord or to recount the deeds of the Lord means for us that we tell someone else what the Lord has brought us through. What he's delivered us from. So, we've got to stop believing that everyone in this building is perfect. <laughs> because we're not. Not one of us is without sin. Not one of us, if we're in Christ, is without sin. So, instead of pretending, putting on this facade of perfection, in our lives. Why don't we recount the deeds of the Lord, what he's brought us from? It's taboo to talk about our past. It's taboo to talk about our sinful state. And I don't think we should dwell on it long, but I do think that there's something to be said for bringing up what the Lord delivered us from and has delivered us to. There are students. <laughs> I'm a student pastor, so I got a harp, right? <laughs> there are students who think that their sin is the only, per they're the only person who's ever sinned in this way. Does that make sense? That's not true, is it? We were just like them. We've sinned just like them. There are people sitting in the pews around you that think they're the only ones who have walked through whatever. We should recount the deeds of the Lord. What has he delivered us from? What has he delivered us to? It shouldn't be taboo to, to joyously praise the Lord for what he brought us from. What if we, as followers of Jesus, we all, we all have a past. So what? We all do. But because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been redeemed. And now we can tell of the good things that the Lord has done in our life out of that. So let's normalize talking about what the Lord has delivered us from. And when we're tempted to again believe that we're in that distress, when we're in that sinful state, when we're in that moment of isolation, we feel like we will never get out of it. Let's remember that the Lord was faithful in the past. The Lord is faithful to us now, even though it might be hard to see, and therefore we can trust him with our future. Praise God that he delivered me from my addictions and my sinful state. Praise God that he delivered me, that I was once dead in my sin, but now I'm alive. Praise God that I was once an enemy of God, but now I can be called a friend. Praise God that I was once condemned to death, but now I'm adopted into the family of God. And you should be able to say the same thing if you're in Christ. And boldly talk about what he has delivered you from. Let's normalize it. Talk to students that need your help walking through their sin, thinking they're on their own. Talk to the people around you. They need your help. And when we talk to other people, we're also reminding ourselves of the goodness of God. So how does remembering and reflecting on the Lord delivering us lead us to live a life of wisdom and worship? Well, when we remember and reflect on what God has delivered us from and delivered us to, it produces in our hearts thankfulness. 
We begin to become thankful for what the Lord has delivered us from and to. And then we become zealous, on fire, because there's nothing else that could have delivered us from where we were. And then we should have a passion to love him wholeheartedly when we remember and reflect on what he brought us from and to. The last thing, a life of wisdom and worship remembers and reflects on Christ the Lord. Verse 19 through 27. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. We pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. This passage is loaded and loaded with messianic markers and pointers. So when we read through this text, our mind should automatically, first thing, go to Jesus Christ. So again, let's just go back through it. We're going to work through it verse by verse. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Again, this psalm's processional, so it takes place inside or outside the temple and inside the temple. In verse 19, he's about to enter into the temple. They're about to enter into the temple, and they're saying, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter it, and only the righteous can enter it. So, who's righteous? Jesus, right? That was good. Good. Who's righteous? Romans 3, 10 says this, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. We can't enter into the temple and make a sacrifice that is permanent for all time on our own. Only the righteous can enter through the gate. Only the righteous can enter through and make sacrifice that is forever. Not one person can enter through the gate and make a sacrifice on their own. Not one person. So in verse 19 and 20, we see that we have a need, really. Again, this is processional, so they are able to go in and they're able to make a sacrifice, but it's not everlasting. So in verse 19 and 20, we see that we have a need for someone to make a sacrifice on our behalf. The righteous can enter through, not us. Verse 21, I love this. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The Lord became our salvation. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake he made him to be sin, so that in, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do we enter through the gates? Because Jesus became righteousness on our behalf. That's how. The Lord is our salvation. We need someone to be our righteousness. The Lord has become our righteousness. We're not righteous on our own. The Lord is righteous on our behalf. The Lord himself, through Jesus Christ, suffered and died in our place and credits his righteousness to our account. So then we see in verse 22 that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus Christ, the one who has become our salvation, is the cornerstone of which this entire new covenant is built. He is the mediator of a better and new covenant. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says this, 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus Christ lived a perfect, sinless life and died a sinner's death that he did not deserve to die. He laid in the grave for three days, rose up from that grave, defeating sin and death, and then lived on this earth for 40 days, ascended into heaven, and is interceding for me and for you to God right now. Even right now. Jesus Christ is the new covenant. The old is gone. And our whole faith is built on Jesus Christ who became our salvation. So then we keep going in 23 and 24. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Why can we marvel? Why can we rejoice? Because the Lord became our salvation. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it because he is the new and better covenant. This is the Lord's doing. Praise God that my salvation is not dependent on me. It's dependent on Christ. So then because the Lord has become our salvation, he has become our righteousness, we can rejoice and we can marvel at the Lord God who created everything and redeemed everything through himself. What a picture of love. That the one who redeemed or created us also gave up his life to redeem us. Verse 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now these verses mimic almost identically what the crowd was saying as Jesus entered into uh, the, the final week of his life in Jerusalem. So Mark 11, 9 through 10 says this. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus comes in the name of the Lord. He is our righteousness. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So as they're entering in, just like they're entering into the temple, as they're entering in, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus. Jesus comes in the name of the Lord. This whole third part of the psalm, this whole third idea, verses um, 19 through 27 should all point us to Christ. It should turn our eyes to Christ. It points to him becoming our righteousness on our behalf, and it points to us rejoicing and marveling at God because of his salvation on our behalf. So we must stop and remember in our lives daily, and I mean daily, that Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is our righteousness. He died on my behalf and on your behalf, and he credits his righteousness to us. So how does remembering and reflecting on Christ the Lord lead us to living a life of wisdom and worship? Jesus is the point. <laughs> He's all. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we're captivated by Jesus, everything else will fall into its proper place. Seek first the kingdom of God. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Turn Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, as the hymn says, right? The perspective is off of ourselves and put onto Christ. So then what do we do with all this? 
this morning? I think the answer is verse 28 and 29. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Extol means to praise enthusiastically. I will praise, enthu- I will praise you enthusiastically, Lord. I'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Our response this morning is to give thanks to the Lord. Our application this morning is to give thanks to the Lord and to praise him enthusiastically. Our response to God this morning and our application is to lift his name higher than any other name because it is. The name above all names, Jesus Messiah, the Lord of all. Our response this morning and our application is to give thanks to the Lord because he is good and faithful to us when we are not good and not faithful to him. He is our salvation. He is our righteousness. Our response this morning is to pause, to remember and reflect on the loyal love that the Lord has for us. He loves you dearly. He cares for you. He loves you. If you're his child, you're adopted in the family of God and you have every right as a son and a daughter. And then to remember and to reflect on what the Lord has delivered us from. We have to remember that we were sinners and that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And then thirdly, we need to remember and reflect on Christ the Lord, the point of all of it. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you this morning for this opportunity that we've had to open your word or for our eyes to be cast towards you. So God, I pray that we would enthusiastically, with joy, praise your name because you are faithful and your steadfast love endures forever. Lord, may we take time, even now, as we begin to sing here in just a few moments, may we take time to remember and reflect on the love that you have for us. Lord, may we take time and remember and reflect on what you've delivered us from and delivered us to. And Lord, may ultimately our eyes be cast to Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness. Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified this morning as we continue in worship. It's your son's name I pray.